We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, welcome to True Faith Weekly Podcast. I'm Alex Hurst, joined today uh, by Andy Bolland, True Faith Weekly Podcast. Hello, Bolland, uh, regular via Skype from Liverpool, and delighted to be joined by Martin Hardy, author of Touching Distance, uh, journalist for various publications across the years, and now author of brand new book, Tunnel of Love, uh, out next Sunday. Uh, is it available at all the usual places, Kindle? It's, uh, it's uh, Yeah, it certainly is. Um, this Sunday, even. This Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> the 15th. Uh, yeah. Uh, you can get it from touchingdistance.com. We will have it at Timeworth Market on Sunday. Waterstones, Amazon, all the rest as well will have it. But if you want to get a signed copy, I'll come and have a chat. Come down to the market on Sunday. Brilliant. Um, so we spoke to you this time, or probably August last year, I think. I think Touching Distance came out a bit earlier in the year. Yeah. Um, is this book the natural... Is it Touching Distance 2? Is my first question. <laughs> uh, I think everybody would have liked Touching Distance 2 to have happened, and then I could have wrote about it. Um, no, it is what happens next, but as everybody knows, <clears throat> that season finished, Alan Shearer signed, and from then on, we had 13 years of absolute chaos, uh, which the book chronicles, and it's ups and downs, and cup finals, and fights, and battles with relegation, and new owners, and it was just, it's a, there are still elements that I enjoyed writing in Touching Distance, and I think people enjoyed reading in Touching Distance that are in there, the kind of that unique, those unique sensations of Newcastle walking out of Wembley for the first time in 24 years in 1998. Cup finals in Europe, sorry, cup semi-finals in Europe rather. Um, <clears throat> semi-final victories at Old Trafford, big win, you know, the dramatic nights against Barcelona in the Champions League, in the Milan final, all these great times, but offset by the fact that there just seemed to be disaster or a peril coming right around the corner. So, Touch and Distance was kind of the romance. Um, I think Ton of Love is kind of the, the reality. Yeah, very well said. Um, just on what you said there, the first thing I was going to say today is that, well, so I'm 28, where we're all allowed to do the podcast and everyone listening who knows where, where. So we're all the same age of the same generation. And Touch and Distance is really good as a kind of for us as an educational tool because <laughs> you've heard the stories and you've, heard, you've seen the TV programmes, but never has there been anything, in my opinion, that goes so in-depth and speaks to the people that were there. And it's really fascinating for us that I found one of the most fascinating chapters you had was actually the Glenroda chapter, because that was when I was that was when I was starting going every away game and you know season tickets with the lads and we were seventeen eighteen at the time. So this is a great story from my generation's perspective, maybe a twenty five to okay. thirty five year olds, yeah, um, sure. because this is this is you know 
and I remember being there within the podcast with you last time and, and Mick Martin at Truth Editor, Truth Editor was kind of reliving the emotions mm. with you which maybe I, I was fascinated to see yeah, but, yeah, but couldn't live and you know you, you speak to Graham Sunas in the book and he's got a really really bad rep really bad rep as Newcastle yeah, yeah. but he comes across really well and he makes a lot of sense with the things that went wrong and We'll go into it, but I, I just, it's been so interesting for me in this this book to cover that. I wouldn't call it the forgotten period of history, but it's not the period of history like you say that touch and distance covered those four years under Keegan and then the, well, the fourteen period that you cover yes, overall. Yeah. That no one looks back at the oh six seven season with any joy, do they? I, I do for, for for kind of personal reasons, yeah, yeah. and like you got you got attached memories to your youth, but no, of course you. You've, it, we are knocking the the top of the egg here because there is so much to talk about. There were many reasons to do touch and distance and one of them amongst there was to record historically a version that was as near as the truth as I could get because there was so much hearsay or conjecture about what happened that season you kind of here it is and here are the people that were involved in it talking about it they are giving you their ver- that, sorry they are telling you what happened to in that campaign not somebody sat who'd heard from a mate from a mate from a mate so it was a it was a romantic period but the book kind of had um, objectives which were <clears throat> to to show what could be achieved in Newcastle when it was done correctly, when it was managed correctly, to get rid of that permanent chip on the shoulder that people outside the region have about Newcastle fans' expectations are too high. It's like, well, hang on, when it's done correctly, they very nearly won the title. And also to put down a historical document of this is this is actually what happened rather than everybody speculating about mind games or anything else. So it was kind of that was the desire for that one. The the follow on which I'd started to write be, even before I'd finished touching distance had similar elements of let's write this correctly historically because again as you said Graham Souness's time is forgotten and yes there were errors and there were some bad signings but there was a UEFA Cup quarter final and an FA Cup semi final and people were getting annoyed kind of tenth eleventh in the Premier League and you think that probably would have that would that, that's beyond anything that's happened the last five years and it was funny when I spoke to Graham who was very accommodating when we were going through these and he started laughing he went it's maybe not as bad as me or everybody else thinks is it and I said yeah it's a fair point no, that's brilliant and like touch and distance one of the well, most impressive or most interesting things for the reader is the fact that like you say you've got direct access to the people that matter mm. you know I mean we're going to go through them but I, th- I thought Freddie Shepard came across very well and spoke speaks very well John Hall like he did in the last in touch and mm. distance to be fair Speaks well. Glenn Rhoda was seems like a great guy. Yeah. Like I mean, I want to talk a little bit later on about the um, impossible job, which he kind of disputes, sure. which other people put forward. But getting access to those people was it easy? Was Glenn Rhoda or, or even Graeme Souness like were they, were they open at first, or did it take some convincing to say, oh, "Come on, put your side of the story"? No, no. I mean, I'll give you I'll give you an example of how it doesn't work. You try to speak to Rude Hullett, and you, it, he's not easy to get a hold of. <laughs> so you eventually. After numerous telephone calls and texts and emails, you get a hold of his PR representative. And his PR representative, finally I spoke to her and explained I'd done a book called Touching Distance and it had been well received. I was now writing one that covered the period of when Rude was in charge. At which point she said, I'm too busy for this, I'm going to Henley, and hung up. So the next day I sent an email saying the same thing and I'm still to hear back. Now, that means, you know, I reported on the Rude Hullet period, I've treated it very fairly, but at the same time, you kind of you wanted that additional input from him. It maybe says a lot about why he didn't succeed, that he didn't quite understand what the club was about then and still doesn't, I don't think. 
by complete contrast to answer your question, people like Glenn Rhoda, who I knew, and Graham Sooners, who I knew, were, were great and very forthcoming. And if you, if, you, if, you, if you want to answer questions about a period when you were in charge of a football club and record it, it's probably best you do it yourself. So that was why it was, it, it was great to spend time with them and chat with them and go through it all again. And as you said, it just by doing that, even Glenn Rhoda and Kevin Ball's argument in a junior game, which somehow ends up with them both on the side of the pitch at the stadium of letting temporary charge of both teams. Mm. You think only in the northeast this kind of thing can happen, but some of them elements you've forgotten. So it was great to speak to them and have it relived. Yeah, Bollins, I'll just bring you in now, and I know you've you like me, you've read you've read the book. Where I want to touch um, on well, the first thing the book deals with, probably in a, in detail, is uh, is Kevin Keegan's first departure as manager from the club. Do you, have you got any questions for Martin on what on what you've read there, and and uh, any analysis you want to put in? No, no, I, there, are, there are an awful lot of parallels between the way Kevin Keegan took charge of the club and the way Rafa Benitez has took charge of the club. And There's been so many lovely elements to touch and distance, but one of them was to learn that Rafa Benitez had read it and had encouraged his backroom staff to read it. And as I was just saying, Alex, there, are, there are, were a lot of reasons for doing the book, and one of them, at the end of it, was kind of, if you want to... A kind of an instruction manual about how to get things right or have a chance of getting things right at Newcastle it's in that book so it was mm. and then before you know it in the summer the whole training ground gets a revamp rooms are changed the whole place gets a spruce up when you're outside there are old radiators and doors and you think this is what Kevin Keegan did he went Rafa, Rafa Benitez has a, a cup competition for juniors in the summer at the, at the academy and he turns up and there's a barbecue these are the things that Kevin Keegan did via talk-ins and travelling around the community to reconnect the club and the club had lost its weight and had lost its soul, its heartbeat and Rafa Benitez is plugging it all in and bringing it all back together. There have always been good people working at the club but it's needed somebody because it's such a big, big, big club and the theme that emerged from Tunnel of Love was just how difficult it was to manage. Um, so you need somebody at the top who's got the drive uh, who knows what they're doing, who can push the club and take it on their shoulders because it, it is a heavy club sometimes. When you get a move in the right direction, the club will take off. That's what happened with Kevin Keegan um, after, he, after he'd saved Newcastle United from relegation. And it feels, it's still very early and you know there's still a long way to go, but there are a lot of elements that Rafa Benitez is, is kind of pushing through at the minute that are very very similar. One thing um, which I noticed, well, came out to me from 
not just the Keegan section of the book but all over the book compared to Touch of Distance was money money seems to, to be a much bigger problem obviously because we weren't as successful as those Keegan here but Rob Lee I think summed it up quite well to you when he said that there's no way Kevin Keegan left Newcastle for football reasons even though we weren't doing maybe as well when he left we're yeah. still in Europe still in the FA Cup we're second or third or fourth in the league yeah. still in the title race and it, it just seems to be a running theme throughout the book that you know, it's not just that the football hasn't been going right at the club it just seems to be badly managed and I know we're going to come on to the people running it later but do you, do you think that um, if, if do you think Kevin Keegan would have potentially remained at the club if the club hadn't gone as gone to PLC or do you, because Kevin, I mean, Kevin Keegan would have would have stayed for another four or five months right that's definite if the club had have handled the, the, the switch to being a PLC better now as to what happened, would happen then, who knows? If Newcastle had have had success in the FA Cup or in Europe, or suddenly pushed on and kicked on, and you've read the the chapter of Rob Lee saying they were in tears in, in the changing room when they got sorry in the training ground when they got told by Terry McDermott that he left, that tells you how much the players were still behind him, and it was a phenomenally talented group of players that had been built relatively quickly and had cost money. If he'd stayed for four or five months. And everything had calmed down a bit in that summer. Potentially would have stayed. Potentially would have stayed in a different position. I'm not sure. But the the way he left was just all wrong. Um, for what he'd done for the club to, you know, be pushed out of Newcastle United by somebody from a um, a, a city a city corporation um, was was a terrible terrible way for his for for the most important part of his time with the club to end. Yeah, we're going to be joined right now by Mickey Collin. Hello. Mickey, Hi, <laughs> Martin. Um, so, just for Mickey's benefit, we'll just talk through a little bit about the reasons for Martin there writing this, you know, next next chapter in Newcastle United history, and we're just going through uh, Keegan's departure and how badly it was managed. Okay. Uh, Bolland also joins us on Skype. Hi, Bolland. Hello, Mickey. <laughs> uh, very cordial. So, I'm going to put you under the spot straight away. Um, Ke- Keegan's departure and 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 Darkleash replacing him. What did you take from the book? What was kind of what was what what surprised you? What shocked you? What did you know? What did you not know? Well, it was just scandalous, wasn't it? Um, obviously, we weren't old enough at the time to really realise what was happening. I remember leaving primary school. My mum told us that that Keegan had left. I just didn't really understand why <laughs> why the manager was leaving the team. Um, just thought the way the, obviously from the book the way the board handled it was just ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, look, look, Freddie Shepard and John Hall both said the club had to become a PLC. They said they had to do that to make the ground in fifty-two thousand capacity. They said they had to do that to bring bigger players in, and the ground development was, you know, you're talking about fifty million pounds. But there was a way to handle it differently, and there was a way for Kevin Keegan to be kept on board. And the the reason they were in that position, as Keegan alludes to, was because of him. Because he came in and picked the club off its knees and drove it and drove it and drove it and was he was he said himself he was exhausted by the finish, but that's when the chairman and the directors give him and the chief executive takes some of the flack for him, whereas they'd been so used to him fronting everything up whether it was the the platinum club or going around the ice hockey club or whatever it was they were that used to relying on him they used him too much yeah and 
yeah, that, that comes out as well in, in terms of stuff again that I didn't know because it, it hasn't been written or we, we, we can't remember yes, yeah. just just little things but for example I didn't know that he was it was leaked that he was going to leave at the end of the season and obviously he, yeah, was, I didn't know that either. he was really unhappy mm. about that and um you understandably know, so as well and uh, yeah and just 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 the way that the final meeting with with Freddie Fletcher who is a central part of the, the book mm. really into or central part of the history of Newcastle yeah. United and again that's maybe to me and make you have heard of him but I didn't know that he it all, it's almost like he ran the show mm. to an extent Keegan's dissatisfaction at only being offered what he was offered at the end and, and is that really what it was it's just very sad and yeah this is a, a the, br- the, 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 rele- the historical relevance is that the statement comes out which says I've resigned so the next day it's Keegan quits yeah whereas Keegan is that annoyed and frustrated and he did have acts of petulance, but usually the petulance was, petulance was to drive the club forward. And in that situation, I think he was right again. It was the wrong time for him to leave, but the PLC, or as it was becoming a PLC, felt it was the right time for him to go. So he left angry that night, and as, as he said, he didn't even check the statement to see what was written in it mm-hmm. until he was going to the channel tunnel with his family, and it starts to break that Keegan has resigned. It's kind of that wasn't the way it actually went. Yeah, um, no. It's great that, that something like this is able to set that record straight mm. because that, we always just... We, if you'd yeah. ask me when well, I start reading it Saturday, Sunday, it, what happened? I just said Keegan left yeah, and quit yeah. and he didn't. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's this... I was just going to say that the book, there aren't that many highs. There are some yeah. and, and they're well, 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 well written, obviously, but also kind of you, you do a good job of kind of, you know, the cup final and, you know, win, win but still you managed to put into words how it felt at the yeah. time and it was That's a brilliant, cool. brilliant experience for the fans before the game. But it's just so sad the, the Keegan departure, the Robson departure, mm. and the Keegan departure again. That just you, you can't help but just feel a little bit like dejected after reading and thinking, is this is this how we treat we each time with Keegan, twice with yeah. Keegan, and then Robson as well. Robson, where you've written it, it it's just disgraceful, really. Yeah, it the makes way you sick, doesn't it? it just it really does. It makes you feel angry just when you when you're reading about how. Again, they were going to move him upstairs, and stuff was leaked to the press again. And he doesn't, and it's and he's hauled in, and he think you know, and it's it's. It, I think Newcastle United, however you want to define Newcastle United, if it's the owners or what, but they just got it wrong. And every, in this book, I'd say the people <laughs> running Newcastle United, apart from bringing Robson back, got yeah. it wrong at every single at every single turn. But the thing is, there was, there was a desire throughout to get it right. Yeah, there was a desire, kind of the season before Bobby Robson was sacked. He castled away from home had been really, really poor. And if you either if you went or you spoke to people who went, they said this isn't good enough. I think it was two away wins all yeah. season. Um, and the wheels were falling off. Uh, you know, the, one of the big stories in the book is Freddie Shepherd, which I don't really want to give away. But yeah. and what happened on the training ground? There were problems behind the scenes, and there is a part of me thinks if Bobby had said, okay, you know, let me kind of ease my way off the training ground because he loved being around the players ease my way from the training ground upstairs and the plan you know the plan was to bring in a big name underneath him I'm just curious as to how that would have worked and whether then the the, you know the personalities were bubbling away in that dressing room not necessarily in a good way whether it would have been able to work out better if Robson had stayed at the club in some capacity now he was asked to do that and it's just a shame that you know he he wanted to manage and coach whereas he didn't want to sit in the boardroom and manage and from there you know then it's kind of it's breakneck from then because there wasn't a manager lined up to replace him. Well, well that's a nice inference because I want to talk to you about uh, Doug Leash, the man that Robson probably should have got the job instead of in the, the, the current history of Newcastle United might have been quite different. Um, 
Dark Vision, the book, and I think you you quote a couple of columns that he's mm. written. Um, he, he seems perplexed by a by the sagging and b by the notion that his his transfers were bad. And actually, there's actually a line in the book which says, "I don't know why everyone criticises my transfer yeah. policy. Every all the lads who came in worked really hard, and it's even for me who wasn't really there at the time. And you look back at the results and the fall in yeah. stock and how well it was the end of the club really as a as a Premier League force mm. in terms of time for the title." Um, do you think Doug? Do you think Douglas had a tough time? I mean, having to sell Ferdinand, you know, and, and he, do you think maybe history is a little bit harsh on him because he speaks a lot of Newcastle fans and no one's got a nice word to say about him, and he seems like a nice guy. I was I was harder on him at the time. Right. I was working as a journalist, and you watch the that team that was so close fall apart so quickly, and you know, I spoke to John Hall about this, and he's still disappointed that Newcastle didn't get Robson to replace Keegan because that was the natural that that was the natural way to yeah. do it. A more passionate figure who would tap into the the region um, more strongly. So there was, there was a big big sense of shame, and that the players all, all talk very highly of Daglish. Now, yeah. he, look, he made mistakes. He let a lot of really good talented players go, and the team became more functional. There were signings like Ian Rush that was just awful, but there was a shake given for that. There was a shake given, or Nikos Dabizas, which is a million and a half pounds each. Nobby Solana comes for two and a half. Haman comes for six. They're good signs. However, there was for that there was a Givash or a mm. Des Hamilton or a Gary Brady, and the whole perhaps the club's cha- feel would have changed anyway because it suddenly wasn't competing at the top end of the market. And as Kevin Keegan admits, the fifteen million was a big stretch, yeah. and it left him very short of finance. But he didn't connect with the support, and I'm not sure he ever would have. But to follow Keegan was just the wrong man, and it was a struggle. I think. His, his, his history has left him very, very. You know, most most fans now say he was a huge failure. You probably say that's more or less correct. Same time he got, he got to a cup final, um, took Newcastle the second that season when he came in when people didn't think that was going to happen. But he, either, I think he lost a lot of the momentum. That's why I think people are still angry about that. The kind of you, you had so much to build on, but he took it in a different direction and became more insular. Whereas Keegan had kind of opened the doors. There is a, a sort of quiet minority in Newcastle fans who look back on Dalglish with at least a bit of giving him a bit of credit for sort of transforming the club into a less like crazy like first team focused mm. like, nutcase enterprise of attacking. I've never really been able to understand that. I can't can't get my head around the idea that you wouldn't want to have an attacking football side or you'd want to replace someone like Ginola who was like all flair and all class with um, just like a functional left winger who was solid mm. um, for me that, that that kind of appointment and that kind of manager was never going to work after Keegan regardless of who it was I suppose it's easy for us sitting here um, 10, 20 years later whatever yeah, and you're, yeah. you're right but um, I also say if you, if you read Tino Aspria and what he's got mm. to say in the book he like if you read what Aspria yeah. said Aspria's almost like saying like he's a nice guy and it's, it's kind of what Martin's saying he just didn't get it like mm. saying he just Douglas just didn't get the players the team the region he just didn't mm. tap into any of the stuff that made the club so successful in such a short period of time and Douglas just didn't he just missed the point and Hullet as he said you tried <laughs> you tried to speak to him and, and he, like I totally agree with you so you were very fair he doesn't come across well in the book Presumably, yeah. because he didn't come across well in real life, and yeah, look, the, 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 
the interview with Rob Lee was really revealing because he, he was very fair and, he, and I said you know what was his problem ego and he went you know you've, you've read it now he said the boys enjoyed training it was yeah. innovative but he was obsessed with himself so he, and Steve Harbour says you know after the failed FA Cup fight and he starts talking about himself yeah. saying I'm not used to this kind of failure and everyone's sitting absolutely devastated thing. He's, off on, he's off on one talking about himself again yeah uh, you know what was it two Tigers can't live on the same mountain I think it was him or Shearer were going to go when when Rudel had left Alan Shearer had scored 87 goals yeah. now he would have left that, that that period if Rudel hadn't, hadn't gone so you kind of say which way do you want to go historically you would always take Shearer oh yeah absolutely um, and, but, 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 but again the, there are basic failings in there that the Sun and Newcastle derby isn't a big one because I've been at Milan um, that notion you're going to drop Shearer and Ferguson for the derby and play Paul Robinson bringing in creating a click with inside your own dressing room because you feel outpowered by another one moving Rob Lee to play with the yeah. kids he was managing for himself and again the point I make in the book for the semi-final is people put the club first so Rob Lee was playing Alan Shearer was playing Hullet was managing the club the Casavans went the team the whole thing felt, felt united for probably one of the only few times under Hullet and before you know Newcastle reached an FA Cup final you think why is it? Why is it so rare that people put the club first? <laughs> yeah, there's a great line in the book from um, Paul Robinson, and he, again he comes across pretty well. I mean, his, I think it was his dad was like, "I'm delighted you're starting because the Sun and season ticket holders just don't score." That was a, a nice line, and, and probably a little bit of kind of, of the you know it, it highlights the ridiculousness of the situation that this lad's been put in for that match. Mm-hmm. I'm saying he w- wasn't trying or anything. Of course yeah. he was, but. To Alan Shearer and Duncan Ferguson, it's how how Hullet got himself. I think what the book does really well, he demonstrates how Hullet gets himself into that mess. Mm. Because if for me again, I think it was about eleven. We'd been like eleven, twelve, and that happened when we were younger. Um, we just couldn't believe it. Do you mean? And even now, you look back and think, why would you not play those players in that match? And you, well, the book when people read it, it kind of gives you an idea of how much he eats himself, basically. Yeah. And so those those two appointments haven't gone well. And I want to talk about Freddie Shepherd now mm. and. He, he he comes across quite well in the book, and the, the one thing that sticks out from Shepherd from the book and what he says, he made a lot of money on Newcastle, but he he had something which we haven't seen in a long time. He he was absolutely convinced and obsessed by by Newcastle being top, of, winning the Premier League, or being in the yeah. Champions League. He, he had no even if he did. The only way he knew, out in my opinion, he could make money is if Newcastle was successful. So that compared to the last eight years since he left, it's been different. And although the, a lot of the appointments were wrong, a lot of the way he treated people, you could argue, was wrong. And you, you look, you look at the really interesting, actually, the fake shake as a an appearance in this book who's been in the news yeah. recently. I didn't know that it was the same bloke. No, we know that. Yeah, <laughs> um, Bolland. What 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 are your thoughts from from Freddie Shepard in the book, and how how do you think he comes across? And what would you like to ask Martin? Are you still there, Bond? Right, we'll cut this. <laughs> um, I'm passing over to you, Mickey. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about that, just, just generally. I didn't realise it was the same guy. Hmm. But the, for me, the whole concept of, of people in football being set up by, by a journalist is disgraceful. I know what, what Shepard and, uh, was saying about Newcastle and about Shearer and everything is just ludicrously stupid for people that were in charge of the club but how how do you feel about people getting set up like that um right obviously it's in being in the news recently because Sam Allardyce 
um, was part of a sting. The, the, this, the sting wouldn't be done by chance. So you wouldn't yeah. arrange a, a meeting with Sam Allardyce out of the blue and keep your fingers crossed and think, let's, <laughs> let's take a one in a thousand chance that he's going to start talking about something controversial. By the same token for Freddie, Shepard and Douglas, you're aware that if you get them there, they might do something, they might say something. So there, there was generally a reason for doing it. I mean, it was two or three weeks of absolute chaos at the club when it broke. When the story came out, um, you know, everybody was calling for the resignations. And as Freddie says in the book, you, they, they finally went against their will, but they still, because they retained, and he was very blunt about it, you know, whether you want to say that's shameless, he says, we had the shareholder and the two families, therefore we made the decisions. So it was a PLC board in generally in yeah. name only. They still held the power. They were the ones that were pushing for Ruth Hullet when Kenny Dalglish was still in charge. Um, it you know it wasn't a great period for the club. Um, it's 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 funny you you know whether or not you remember it as well as as we do at the time. But it put John Hall back in the limelight because he had to take over. And in the same way that Kevin Keegan led the club so well, and Rafa Benitez is leading the club very well now, John Hall had that dynamic personality to come into the press conference before Wembley and say, I don't want to be here. <laughs> it's been a nightmare for my family. Children are suffering. And within 10 minutes, it was the Geordies are on the march and we're going to take London. We're going to <laughs> do this, that and the other. And he, he thought, you know, banging the tub thumb and he was brilliant at it. Um, <clears throat> so that brought him back to the fore. I would say Freddie, Fred, you know, Fred, the, the Shepherd family and, and the Hall family's made, made a lot of money out of Newcastle United. As D- John Hall said, nobody else was coming along when John Hall got involved in Newcastle United, you could not stand in St James's Park and stay dry. Hmm. The ground, had, you know, they knocked down the leases then, not replaced it. It hadn't been touched. The team had had a couple of fortunate periods, largely. Um, and he said, you know, that's capitalism. That's the name of the game. They used their house to underwrite the debts of the club or, or the investment that was coming. And but it was a phenomenal amount of money they took out of the club. But that was the name of the game. And in the defence of John Hall, that was a period that most Newcastle fans never thought would come. Yeah, big, big became very big players in the transfer market and built the ground. And he thought that's all Newcastle fans have been asking for for a very long time. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And it's having read True Faith for a long time, and I've been certainly involved in it. You know, the the Shepherds and John Hall have never come across well, but when you just put it in black and white like you have and you look at right okay when he puts his side across it's you're a bit like yeah actually that makes loads of sense why why shouldn't you be rewarded even if the way he went about it at the end with <laughs> the sale of Ashley not being great but again I mean oh, I thought that was quite funny I thought that was quite yeah. funny when he kept you know what was he said I don't have to buy it I'll go to Barbados for three years and then I'll come back I don't need the money so yeah. I thought that was quite funny <sighs> the argument from Within the book, from um, I'm trying to think now, is it from Dennis Cassidy saying that some of the shareholding or some of the investment should have went into the transfer kitty rather than to their mm-hmm. the, the hall and the ultimately the shepherd pockets, which has which has you know validity to it. Um, the fact that due diligence wasn't done was because Mike Ashley made his mind to buy a football club very quickly, and the only way he was going to get it was if he moved within three or four days, um, and he did that and got the club and didn't realise that he had effectively a mortgage that had to be paid off within two months so uh, on the happier times then Bobby Robson comes back to Newcastle and again you, you, you 
chronicled that process quite well about how it was never really in doubt and he, he pushed it through but one of the things I took from just the whole Robson period if you go from start to finish is just how how good Newcastle were and I think it's lost a little bit and the most interesting thing to me is you, you list all of the highs and the wins and, and you know what Newcastle did Newcastle beat everyone they didn't have any bogey teams or they did you know well against some better than us but Newcastle beat everyone we, we'll beat Man U we'll beat Arsenal we'll beat Leeds we'll beat Chelsea we'll beat Liverpool we'll beat everybody and I think Robson's side doesn't really get the credit maybe even from the, the wider Premier League yeah. world, journalist world about how how close they came and I, I should have made a better note of it but there's one player in the book who mentions that losing I think it was Craig someone said we lost Craig Bellamy John Carver made John Carver said that yeah and I think that's a, I remembered thinking how devastated we were that, and it's, yeah. that, that team could have could have done something special do you agree do you think they were nearly there or I think they were close I think even regardless of Craig Bellamy's injury I don't think they were quite there um, you just thought as there's lots of different little anecdotes that are of interest but the win at Arsenal all the players when Newcastle won 3-1 and Alan Shearer scored a penalty Robert, uh, Laurent Robert scored right at the death and Newcastle went top of the league all the players said they went in the dressing room and just about collapsed because they had taken so much out of them he thought it's brilliant that they're pushing themselves so hard but it suggests they're not quite there yet um, with careful building you think it would have taken them to another level but the, again the, the team had grown so fast that's what happens in Newcastle. It goes from one minute, it's the brink of despair, and then it gets turned around, and somebody who can actually understand the club and how to run it gets it moving in the right direction. And before you know it, it's pushing for the title. Now, obviously, good players have been left, like Gary Speed, Alan Shearer, Shea Given. Mm-hmm. Um, but the signing of Bellamy and Jenis and Robert were great, were great for the football club. It needed a little bit more, I thought, think, to have kind of got back to that level where Keegan had them as perhaps the favourites to win the title, whereas. Newcastle had that mantle of outsiders but they became very exciting and it would have been interesting as you say if Craig Bellamy had to stay fit just to see how close things would have went Bolland have you got anything to say on this part of the book? Uh, yeah I guess you say they were close but they weren't quite there what, what in your opinion were Newcastle lacking? Or, well or, to be honest but if I just if this is not meant to be disrespectful I just don't think the back four was strong enough so you might say it could have been Andy Griffin or um, Aaron Hughes at right back you could have your centre halves perhaps Nick Ostabizas maybe Titus Bramble with Oli Bernard at left back and you, I think that's not quite a title winning defence but as usual with Newcastle and Stan Anderson said this in a great book called up there 40 years ago Newcastle fans just go get, get into them and charge and he said I, I'm not sure anything of that has actually changed <laughs> so if, as long as you foot your back for a co- <laughs> are competent you're alright and from then you had Real, yeah, Kieran Dyer, top of his game, Nobby Solano, Lauren Robert, Craig Bellamy, Alan Shearer with Gary Speed in there. You had enough to force other teams on the back foot. Um, and bring that up to date, Newcastle equalised in the 95th minute against Norwich to make it 3 3. And John Joe Shelby gets the ball. And a lot of managers might be saying, no, we've got a point from nowhere yeah. here. The whole crowd just went, booted up as fast as you did. <laughs> it was like this scream of belted, which Newcastle did and scored a goal. So in that, in that sense, not much has changed. It, it, the most important positions are your front six. I think over time, Rafa Benitez might try to change that philosophy. Um, but, but I would say they weren't quite title, a title winning back four. The signing of Woodgate was such a good one as well because he, he, I think he's the best centre half I've seen play for Newcastle 
but it, he was he, he, he was just so troubled with injuries unfortunately yeah it's, I think it's, it's a shame for just English football generally that he couldn't stay fit yeah no absolutely would have been, been a great England centre half as well I think he would have been the best English centre half of our generation if he'd stayed fit he had a, a class that nobody else has matched yeah it was a massive coup at the time I remember again we'd have been 12 or 13 and it was big news it was It was. I think it was the only the, the transfer window had just come in mm. and everyone was a bit scared of it all the Premier League clubs were keeping their powder dry and we went out and we bought one of Leeds' best players who Newcastle were very aware of the financial situation Leeds were involved with as they were for Ipswich yes. which is why players like Darren Ambrose and Jonathan Woodgate appeared Great. which is you know Newcastle have done it this summer and got enough grief off people because they're aware clauses were in people's contracts you've got to be clever in the transfer market the periods when Newcastle have done well is when they've got the recruitment spot on. Yeah, absolutely. We touched on it a little bit earlier, Robson's departure, and I, and I said um, it's, it's a very sad part of the book, and it's a very... Mm. I don't know if it was someone quoted, or if it was you who said he never really got over it. No, I think I think I, think I said that. Yeah, you said no, he that. He never came to terms with it. And that's that been devastating, really, for a Newcastle fan, a bloke that did so much for the club in such a sort of... Uh, short space of time and like was said earlier it's it's so sad that both Keegan and him mm. great servants have left feeling feeling that way I mean obviously he he'd come through a lot as well in, in his life to get yeah. there both managerially and personally and it, that, that should have been the crown and mm. the crown and glory do you think that you know you, you described the process um, for for finding his his replacement mm. in, in, in um, Sunes being appointed and Sunas in his own words which is great to hear like we said says that you know he was following like you said actually for Kenny Davies he, he Graham Sunas says listen I was following Bobby Robson it was mm. it was almost an impossible job and that's what I want to talk to you about now is this the impossible job and he, he's been clear about it and Allardyce clear about it it's been clear about it since it's clear in the book mm. they call it an impossible job would you agree or disagree well, as, as with touching distance there, there are things that emerge that you don't expect which is part of the fun of writing the book I hadn't expected a theme to emerge but all of a sudden Kenny Daglish says Newcastle upon time is unique and their football team is unique and I've been at Merseyside in Glasgow and nothing prepares you for the obsessive nature of Newcastle United fans Sam Allardyce leaves slightly more bitter (laughs) says this is an impossible job there is an element of support that will turn on you straight away um, I think Chris Hewton makes reference to the period when Kevin Keegan left and said he suddenly was made aware of just how big this football club was and what it meant to the city Graham Sooners said um, I've managed in Portugal, Turkey Glasgow and uh, again Merseyside and he said at these he said he called them monster clubs and he said at them clubs you were five games away from no matter how well you're doing a bad run and the fans will turn and he said at Newcastle it's three or two or sometimes even one so that theme emerged of just how difficult the the, the, the job of managing Newcastle is what what you have is an obsessive nature by the fans because people go, look at Newcastle fans and sometimes go you say you're obsessed everybody's obsessed you bang on so much about it it's reassuring when it's somebody from outside the region and the club that says it's a bit different because you then go okay yeah that's what we'd always thought what you therefore have to take is the strengths and make sure they don't become weaknesses now that is what Kevin Keegan got very really really correctly right in terms of making sure the football club moved with the support together Robson got it right for a period and 
this it feels at the minute like Rafa Benitez has. I think it's because it's been such a long period without success. The mood of the club moves incredibly quickly in a similar way to what happens with England. So if Newcastle win a few games, everybody's getting their passports out and they're ready to conquer Europe and they're talking about, will this team be ready for the Champions League next season? And if Newcastle lose two games as they did at the start of the season, it's time to smash it all up and get rid of him and get rid of him. And what it needs is somebody to be a little bit calmer. And it was interesting that Rafa Benitez, at the same time as I'd finished, by complete coincidence, the same time I'd finished interviewing Graham Souness was becoming concerned with the reaction after the second defeat against Huddersfield and he made sure that he spoke to people who were influential amongst the supporters just to say please calm down get everybody to slow down a little bit um, so he's not diluting the passion of the support just kind of trust in us and we'll get it right the problem you have is historically since 1927 the league title hasn't come the last few years uh, there's been a drip drip effect of the optimism and positivity of the support and he's trying to kind of plug gaps and make everybody kind of build themselves back up again and not be too negative I think it's a phenomenally difficult job don't get us wrong on that one but it's not impossible yeah fair, fair comments um, Glenn Roder again I said earlier in the, the podcast he comes across so well that you know this is a guy who I, this is a bold claim by me but the best Newcastle side I've seen play going regularly as an adult is Glenn Rhodes Newcastle when he took over to finish in 7th I mean he took a team from 15th or 16th to 7th in what did he take over March April you know pretty he had a, I think he won his his last 7 games so he had an incredible yeah, record did, I think yeah. the the job he did with the, with the tools he had was was fantastic and he kind of echoes what you just said there he's, he's the flip side to mm-hmm. the well first of all he's not bitter at all he doesn't come across as bitter in fact he's grateful yeah, yeah. which is really nice not even mm-hmm. as a football fan it's just nice to read someone in the game who actually appreciates what they've had mm-hmm. Um, and you know he, he he again he talks about money and talks about the fact that I remember this at the time as an 18 year old thing why aren't we signing anybody sign someone Roder and he's saying that like literally got no, we've got no money um, in, in that financial aspect of it I don't know whether it's because it's you know today we're in a social media age and everyone everyone's an expert now I don't know if it was the same then it, it, it kind of felt the same but do you think that the club was as people say um, really heading down the leads etc scenario and if, if Ashley hadn't come in then we really would have been up against it Freddie Shepard's argument would probably be that what bar the start of the Rude Hullard season Newcastle never really went anywhere near relegation so yeah. if, as long as you don't get relegated out of the Premier League you're alright yeah. um, unless obviously unless you at that period unless you'd spent 250 million yeah. the the big danger which and Freddie Shepard admits the worst signing was Michael Owen the big danger was how over how much they overspent then mm-hmm. now his base was 103,000 a week 18,000 image rights so you're talking about 120,000 pounds a week in what year was that 2000 are we talking 10 years ago yeah that is the equivalent now of Newcastle paying 350 <laughs> I would suspect 350,000 pounds a week for a player <laughs> you know that's kind of Wayne Rude that was the yeah. be- best paid player in the country that was when you thought hang on a second you need 10,000 fans came and they weren't worried about what was happening with the bank balance and again I don't want to go down the line of bad luck if Alan Shearer doesn't get his foot caught in the pitch at Goodison Park he stays that season it's, it, uh, Kenny Dagnish's job is miles easier if Mike alone doesn't get injured the two times that he did the job of any manager whether it's Glenn Roder or um, Graeme Souness is miles easier 
So they, there was a phenomenal loss. What you would say is if Michael Owen stays and scores 30 goals that season, where did Newcastle finish? Fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth? Suddenly you might be going they're back in the Champions League. The speculation has paid off. But Shepard was very honest on that one. He said, yeah, it's a deal we shouldn't have done. And I said, did he get carried away? He went, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, the, but, the, but, but as you just said there yourself, as a fan, you're going, yeah, we want, we want to yeah. sign him. We want to sign him. Sometimes you've got to go, whoa, slow down a bit. <laughs> and getting inside the minutiae of what might have gone wrong, Graham Sooners wanted Lewis Buamorte and Nick Masanelka, and he got Albert Luque and Michael Owen. So sometimes the manager and the recruitment weren't necessarily on the same page and it's still been a problem in the yeah. last few seasons. And what I got at the very end of the book, the end of the book sad, it is a sad ending really because it finishes yeah, with Newcastle's yeah. relegation and it starts off with that awful Keegan second tenure regarding the way Keegan was treated. Yeah, because yeah. It, you know, the, the results were especially bad. I mean, mm. he, he picked the team up after Allardyce was a slow start and, I was at Old Trafford that for that 1-1 draw Manchester United were, were reigning champions yeah. of Europe they were going into that game it was their first game since being crowned champions mm. of Europe and Newcastle were, were like you put in the book there and well, well worth the point and that, that whole again it's tinged with sadness and you read you, you in the book you, you list two things which are grim reading one Ashley's statement when he puts the club up for sale which seems like it's who wrote that I have no idea it's, <laughs> it's petulant it's childish it's self-aggrandising and then you've got Joe Kinnear's interview which is again I'd forgotten <laughs> the, about it the press conference yeah the press conference sorry I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten about, I don't know how I'd forgotten about it but I had because I'd, so much has gone on yeah there were, there were, sorry I'll let you come back to your point there were times when you were kind of just trying to shoehorn everything in because there was so much and have you got that have I got that have I got that and towards the end of the book Right, why was Joey Barton not playing? Oh God, he was in prison. What was he in prison for? Oh, he, he, he beat up a 15-year-old outside of McDonald's at five o'clock in the morning. So how on earth did Newcastle stay up for so long with, yeah. with so much going on? I mean, point was going to be, it's such a marked contrast to the end of touching distance. That's what I, that's what I was yeah. sitting there thinking. I remember reading the end of touching distance last year before our podcasting. This was in, this is incredible. Yeah. What a even though we knew the facts, we didn't know the emotions and feelings behind that run in 95, 96. And I, I sat there reading that thing, and this is a great contrast to Touch and Distance. So in many ways, yeah. it's not Touch and Distance too, because it's a different oh, no, story. It's, it's a different story, and it's a different ending. And obviously, all three of us Newcastle fans mm-hmm. sat on the table. Now, you, you look back and think, particularly the way you've written it, just thinking, why did I even bother? <laughs> if you look at the chaos that's on the, yeah. on, on the pages, which is real life and like you say it's, tr- it's the truth it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it happened you just you just get the feeling like why why were we you know I, I remember Hull at home and, and I, we were well, I was at university at the time and travelling back for it on the train and travelling back for you know that season at West Brom at home on a Tuesday night you know a couple of the games yeah. I, you know I have a fairly good memory of, of, of Newcastle games mm. I'm just saying I've got no memory of this and it's, it's you've got no memory of it because you've, you've almost wiped it out there's no positivity to be gained and I think you do a really good job in the book of, of kind of setting the scene of the desperation mm. at the end of it so I hope your next book ends on a ends on a high if there is one well I could act, to be honest I could do that as you just said there the first one ends with Newcastle blowing the title the second one ends in relegation so <laughs> it kind of Rafa came last season and you're thinking alright yeah. oh, it didn't work out he hasn't, hasn't kept the club up but it, it feels like there could be something better in the end obviously book three is on its way as well it would be nice to finish that with a, a positive story for yeah. once rather than the doom and gloom. <laughs> um, but what, what are you saying there about as a fan, why do you bother? Well, of course you bother, but 
Newcastle fans want to feel or talk or do something about the football club just about every day and Newcastle filled that element of, of your life at that time whether it was good or bad there was just always something to talk about the relentlessness of it whether it was players coming players going players fighting wins defeats going up the league going out of the league down the league managers coming managers going it was just breakneck um, you, you didn't have time to kind of go right what's just happened there because before you knew something else was going on Mickey anything to add anything you want to ask before I, we go I just thought from reading the whole book like as Dodds has said he did well to to keep talking about the highs but just the, to see all the crushing lows that we've had to deal with over the past 15 or so years written down in front of you and read them all one after another it does make you wonder why we put so much effort and so much time so much money into supporting Newcastle when they deliver so little but that, but that, that, that was why I, and I didn't do it deliberately kind of just when I was writing it why Barcelona was I was trying to recapture every emotion of that night why trying to capture every emotion of the Man United game the two FA Cup semi-final victories the, the FA Cup semi-final defeat against Chelsea was still a source of great pride because finally Newcastle had turned up and played and scored you know scoring a goal again to an outsider reading it you go people criticise Newcastle fans for this or that or the other they're the highs mm-hmm. it's not six league championships <laughs> four FA Cups two European victories it's two FA Cup semi-final wins but there were still some of the greatest days of your life you know the 25,000 people going bananas together um, the fire and order way victory Newcastle arriving in, in Milan with 13,000 supporters which when we, you know you're thinking 15, 20 years earlier couldn't have been dreamed of so from the, from, it's all about context the context is they are still phenomenal highs it's just you feel like there should have been so much more and that, maybe that was that 13 year period where perhaps they just pushed too hard to try and get it I think that's a really good way of putting it like we talked about Shepard and we talked about even Souness and, and, and these other people there was always the ambition that's the word mm, Newcastle yeah, yeah. talked about there was the, always the willingness to be the best or to be up there with where, where we, well, we would believe or we, this football club should rightfully be and a lot of people might have got a lot of things wrong but throughout the whole book apart from right at the end um I think that, and like I said to you, I think that comes out really well in, in Freddie Shepard and his enthusiasm for success mm. comes out and you can't help when, when reading, in his own words, uh, to you and, and even the stuff you've, you've got in beside it, you can't help, there's, there's a Newcastle fan. Yeah, I mean, Graham, Graham, Graham Sooner said that. Graham Sooner said, whatever you say about him, he's a huge fan. And he says, you know, that's not necessarily always the case when you're a manager of a football club. I think there was desire there. I don't accept his desire was purely to make money. And I don't think it was. I think it was to be the man that led Newcastle United to be successful. And I think everybody kind of, everybody wanted that golden ticket. Which yeah. what Rafa Benitez wants now, they want to be the first manager to go sit on the TV and go, I did it. <laughs> I was the one that did it. And then you go, you know, I had to write a list down and, and more or less pin it on my wall, which was the managers, because so many came during that period. Just yeah. getting my oh six or seven, who was in charge of then? Okay. And you're writing down some of the biggest names in British football, from Keegan, Daglish, um, Robson, Souness, Hullett. Yeah. Not Ruth Hullett, was this European Football of the Year. Right the way through to Keegan coming back. Um, and obviously then you have Joe Kinnear, <laughs> which we've not really, not really spoke about. If you want to kind of summarise that period, Newcastle went from Kevin Keegan to Joe Kinnear. Yeah, that's a great way the, of putting it. 
they went from arguably the greatest manager they've had in the last 50 years to Joe Kinnear who'd been out of the game for five before it was four or five years since taking on the forest to bring a relegation and then and that and then, and then the fireworks started incredibly yeah. um, so sometimes people say to me what, what do you think is going to happen and I say hang on a second you can never predict this football club and maybe yeah. that's why people are so obsessed with it because you've just got no idea what's coming around the corner if you had a said let me think February time Newcastle will get relegated and you will it'll be one of the best days you have at St James's Park in years and you'll be <laughs> filled with optimism you went what? what are you talking about if when Sunderland beat Everton at the stadium like 3-0 four months ago and that ground was absolutely rocking and Newcastle fans were distraught if you'd have said in four months it will have turned around to the level it has again you would have said really? Yeah. It just it's such an unpredictable football club that you just have to keep no you have to rub a neck down the road and see what's happening um, because there is just always something coming brilliant well I think that just about does it for today I really appreciate your time again um, hopefully we'll see you this time next year for your next pleasure. I hope you're right yeah um, just to repeat to everybody listening the book is released officially this Sunday the 15th you can get it from touchanddistance.com uh, Time Mouth Market where I was this Mr. Martin but I was down there <laughs> gotta get, get a sandwich yeah get a, get a signed copy um and we will be back with a podcast for you post Brentford on Saturday night. So just leaves me to say thanks, Martin. Thanks, Mickey. And thanks, Bob. No the headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com